G'day civilians, little public service announcement here. On behalf of our partners at Better Beer, the Arvo Ale is upon us. And that means that as soon as the sun gets past the peak of its daily arc and the stifling heat and rank humidity are at their oppressing most mugginess, nothing on this planet will freshen up your Arvo like a better beer Arvo Ale. This is the most sessional Pacific Ale that'll ever pass your lips. Super easy drinking, clean and crisp. It's like a winter offshore in the middle of summer and it's a craft beer without the craft beer wank. You know what I'm talking about. Craft beer wank, it kind of tastes a bit like, I don't know, fruit salad and yogurt. It's like, fuck, mate, if I want to drink fruit salad and yogurt, I'll fucking go and get a smoothie, all right? When I drink a beer, I want to be refreshed. I want it to be clean and crisp and I want it to be the better beer Arvo Ale. So kick the back half of your day off in style with a better beer Arvo Ale. It's available now at all good bottle shops or you can jump online and see where they stock it. Better beer Arvo Ale, proud partners of Ain't That Swell. Ain't That Swell presents Corbords. Today's guest is Matt George, one of the most eccentric and enigmatic icons to grace this bodgy caper. He's a titan of the surf journalism trade, a 69-time Gold Cone Peace Award winner, no less, and he's just put out a best-of book of sorts. Uh, It's filled with some of his favourite stories from across his storied decades-long career, and you can find it on Amazon. It's called In Deep. I'll put a link in the show notes. Go and grab it, and stay tuned for the hell-raising memoir, soon to be written. I've known Matt for quite a few years. I've written stories for him, and I've always been fascinated by him. He kind of reminded me of a character from Apocalypse Now, that acidy, tweaked-out Francis Ford Coppola Vietnam War film. But I could never figure out which one he was, whether he was Colonel Kurtz, the skit soldier who disappears into the Mekong to live with the natives, or the mad journalist played by Dennis Hopper who gets his fucking head cut off. He's probably a mix of the two, a deep thinker, a great writer, and a courageous lunatic who's done everything from aid work in tsunami-ravaged Arche to rescuing people on jet ski in the streets of New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina to making a Hollywood feature film in God's hands to hanging with Shane Haran during his Gary meltdown to sleeping on Kelly Slater's mum's floor just to get the scoop. He's a living legend, a surf culture treasure, an honorary Australian, and much more. And if you're just listening to this episode, you should probably also know that there is a filmed version on YouTube. Link is in the show notes. All right. You know what I love about whatever sort of cool Australian cabin you're in is that there's a surfboard, a skull, and a Henry Rollins poster. Now, I don't know, man. If if that's not cool, I don't know what is. You know. Well observed, my friend. Yeah. Well, and there's there's deep connections there to all three objects. The surfboard is a morning of the earth twin fin made by Simon Jones, the guy who I credit with getting me into surfing. Uh, one of my mum's dear friends, and I uh, call him uncle because uh, that's essentially what he is to me. And I yeah, you. that's uh, that's uh. Basically, the best twin fin ever made. I'm calling it's uh, a, ch- sure. uh, a swallowtail twin with a couple little flies on it. 
I think loosely based on a prototype written by Barton Lynch, uh, a Greg Cloth. How do you say Cloth? Is it? Yeah, it's Cloth. Yeah. Cloth. Yeah, Greg Cloth. Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and Simon's from Manly and, and grew up with BL. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the. He reckons BL was doing the best surfing of his career on that that oh, wow. same similar kind of surfboard. Um, and then the Henry Rollins poster. Yeah, Mum took me to see Henry Rollins at the Enmore no. when no. I was when I was twenty one on that tour. That's fantastic. Mom brought you to Black Flag, you know. Yeah, like yeah. Exactly. He'd kind of hung up the Black Flag deal by that point and was just doing his spoken word tours, but fuck, man. Yeah. The guy spent three hours talking without a break and you were pretty well riveted the whole time. Um, sure. And the Enmore in Sydney is like this dilapidated family-owned theatre. It's iconic. It's in Newtown. Uh, this old Greek family owns it. It's like walking into fucking, I don't know, like. No, I've been to the Enmore. It's like walking into the past. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. That's epic. You've been there. No way. What were you doing there? Well, I used to live in Sydney, as you know. I used to live up above, in Earl's Court up above uh, the ferry, the Manly Ferry. I didn't know you lived in Sydney, mate. You've done everything. You, you've lived one of the most <laughs> extensive uh, and incredible lives of, of any person I know. It's outrageous. Wow. That's a real compliment coming from you. Thank you, Jed. So what were you doing in Sydney? Um, I was working for uh, – I was one of the editors of Waves magazine. And, of course, I've been – uh, involved proudly involved in tracks all my life and um you know it, it was my it was my Aussie era and I was actually uh living with a, a a beautiful woman who was the Victorian female cricket team captain and um she was a very dangerous spinner and um I was uh we, we were living together there and I used to take the manly ferry to work okay honey and she'd fix me like a little sanger and I'd go down and as the ferry pulled out, I'd wave to her, you know, and she'd wave to me from the balcony of Earl's Court, you know, and that was a, a great love affair. Are you kidding me? You were living with a Victorian female leg spinner. Are you serious? That is yes. too iconic. Who's making she your was, singers on your way? Really. Who's making your like singers on your way like across all, Sydney like, Harbour on a ferry? Like all Australian women, she was remarkable. I'm telling you. <laughs> wow. I love that. Uh, yeah, man. And, I mean, and then, and then I'd show up in Darlinghurst, like next to King's Cross, there, and walk into the editorial team, and we'd go, "Well, what are what kind of mischief are we going to get into today?" You know, and that was journalism, man. You know, it's a super interesting period of waves and, and, and tracks as history. I, I had Steve Cooney on the show a while back, and he was talking about, I guess, a period that that predates that slightly, but working for tracks when tracks was basically rolling stone in, in ways. And, you know, oh, Hunter yes. S, like it was one of the, the leading, if not the leading countercultural mags in the world. Um, sure. And you had like the likes of Hunter S Thompson coming through the offices and, you know, Steve ended up being his chaperone in Sydney and, you know, they ended up having a, a long friendship after that. But, yeah, it was. Uh... Well, well I rem- you know, I remember working for them when it was a newspaper, of course, and um, and it, it was in newsprint, and they'd have covers of like uh, Nat Young as Jesus Christ, um, or um, a outfall of pollution, and this would be the cover of the Surf magazine, you know, and it was really something, and I think that 
it really influenced my work at Surfer Magazine, and certainly this this book that I've that that's just been published. But we'll get back to that later. But with the tracks thing, the journalism that Americans loved about Australian surf journalism was their courage. Like they were on it, man. It was like you were in a pub and you could talk and you could say things and you could make a difference. And it ended up with us Americans, you know, becoming Aussieophiles. Like we just worshipped the Australian surf scene because. I don't know. It was so it was so honest. And in many ways, it allowed us to have our Vietnam, you know, because we would go on all the poo marches and we'd go on all the different um, ocean outfall marches. And, you know, we felt like we we're making a difference in the ocean. And of course, the offshore drilling and all this. And man, we we were there man. Americans showed up and we're like, we're going to live here forever. You know, it was a spectacular place for us. Yeah, I love that, man. That's an interesting observation, just about the differences, the the subtle nuances in surf culture from here to America. And it's something I think about a lot. Um, I've noticed there's a very big difference in America between, say, the West Coast and, and Florida. You, mm-hmm. you can, there's a perceptible difference in the, the, the nature and, and culture of surfers that come out of those two locations. It seems to me at least, um, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. That's why all the world champions come from the East coast. You know, they're, they're, they're desperate. These are desperados, you know, they're like, it's the wild West back there and mm-hmm. there's not enough resources. So every single wave that appears is ridden to its absolute maximum there's no sitting at, at Duramba and watching a nice offshore afternoon those guys are out there on that you know um and the other thing that was i think the one thing that we really related to is northern californian surfers my brother sam and i was the physical geographical beauty of australia that matched our um our philosophy because we were san francisco santa cruz big sur central coast you know and so when we got to like bells, when we finally got to the the uh, all, God Almighty Holy Bells, when we finally got there, and I include the Torquay Pub in that, by the way, um, when we when we Morris finally, Cole's victims blood splatters on the ground. Oh yeah, of course. I actually saw Morris Cole uh, knock out a pit bull dog once. <laughs> no, listen to this story. Okay, it's the Torquay Pub. No, we're next door at a, a I think white, white shark surfboards. And this pit bull was loose in, on the streets of Turkey, terrorizing the place. And it scared this little girl. And Morris saw this out of the corner of his eye. And he got down on his hands and knees. And he crawled up to that dog and said, mate, and swung this massive right fist and knocked the dog out. Wow. That's a true story. Man, okay. that's crazy. The fucking- this is the kind of stuff that, that we loved. And, you know, as Americans, we're like, oh, these Aussies, mate. You know, yeah, but uh, it was the geographical beauty, particularly when we invite when we arrived in Victoria, just that beautiful, you know, the the beautiful waves, the big offshore winds, and you know, Gibson steps and the surf coast, and you get to put on a wetsuit, and it really, really suited us, Victoria. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess Australia culturally, we're we're pretty different, like in terms of, uh, you know, it's always been the workers' paradise or this kind of like fairly blue collar utopia um and you know we never had any great conquests as a nation in fact we were just pretty much playing defense uh militarily and the the only like thing of note that happened to us in the theater of war was 
an insane slaughter in Gallipoli where a bunch of aristocrats fucking sure. sent us to our death. So there's a, a very deep skepticism of power, of authority, of the rich and the aristocrats. And it's a yeah. country where it, it's it's fairly, it's considered shameful to be flashy and showy with wealth and success where uh, the, the, the rich really get no respect here. Um, well, and- I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what does get respect, Jack, and something that really impressed us Americans, particularly me all my life, was the fair go. Um, the Australian fairness and the, the, the togetherness of, of that, like that the brotherhood. I once did that article for tracks called Pubdom, and it was all about the kingdom of the pub of Australia, where that's where people gather and all bets are off, all, all pretenses are off. And it's also this fair go thing. Like if someone's having a dig, that's enough. That fair go, man, you know, and the fairness in the sports, which was which was worshipped. And I think that it's it's one of the national treasures of Australia. And I think it still exists because we see the floods and we see the fires. And there's some lady in a bra out there, you know, with her garden hose protecting her friend's house, you know, and and there's. There's just to us with Australians, there's a real togetherness that we just don't get in the United States. Yeah, that's well put, man. And and that fair go, I mean, it should be written on the the emblem on, on the the national flags, you know, fair go cunt, like something. Yeah, no, I like agree. That. I agree a hundred percent, you know. But it's like, always been that way. Yeah, and, and we I guess cling on to that and, and celebrate that, whether it's a myth or not. I mean, we we've become yeah. increasingly influenced by American culture and capitalism and these things, but that is still the mantra of pretty much every leader who ever uh, takes control of this country. They know that those two simple words resonate so hard and and no one's willing to step away from it, even if their policies are the complete opposite of that. But well, I'm glad glad you brought up the the Australian leaders because I was in the Woolloomooloo pub once waiting for a boxing match. And Bob Hawk, the prime minister, Bob Hawk, walks in with his bricklayer mate and they step up to the bar. And I was looking left and right going, is anyone, do you know who that is? Is anyone, you know, and everyone's like, take it easy, man. He's just having a beer with his mate. And it was the, it was this, the, the, the religion of the pub that you, whoever you are, you walk in there with a mate and you're not hassled, man. You know, if that would have been Obama in America, you know, they would have called in a B-17 strike or something. You know what I mean? It's like. I, I, that really impressed me that that pardon me <coughs> I'm just getting over a flu that nobody <coughs> pardon me that nobody even bothered to bother Bob Hawk in a pub I thought that really impressed me you know yeah that, that I think that's another thing Australians pride themselves on is not buying into celebrity culture and celebrity worship like it's and i think that's why a lot of famous people enjoy spending time down here because it's it, sure. like, again it's it, it's written into that culture where like same with a fair go same with like that uh kind of skepticism of power and authority and, and wealth there's just this thing where it's like considered shameful to go and fucking sweat sweat some cunt because he's a somebody um but yeah. you know these things i guess are also being somewhat lost from the culture with social media and selfies and all that horse shit. But yeah, mm-hmm. traditionally it's been a place where you respect people's um, boundaries and you don't, you know, you, you try to, you strive to treat everyone the same. And, and that's like a, a trippy, like Buddhist principle of equanimity that somehow 
shared in the working class and the blue collar culture as well. But it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice concept. I hope it survives. Fair go is very not even basically. It's very simply the golden rule: treat others as you'd have them treat you. And you know the Australians live by that. And you know that's the thing about one one of the things I'm really proud about in this in this new book is is the fact that there's a lot of Australian stories in here because that was a real Australia has always so deeply impressed me. And as you know, I've lived there and um, I, I was competing there as a professional surfer. Then I became a journalist and then I wrote for all the great magazines. And of course I was the American voice of triple J, you know, for the bells beach contest for almost God, 15 years. No way. Anyway, what haven't you done? It's insane. Are you serious? And just, and just the other day, just here, I was hanging out with claw Warbrick. Okay. Claw was here and we were dusting off some old memories and, but he's what a classic man! What what a visionary! I mean, Rip Curl founder for the uninitiated. Yes, yes, Rip, Rip Curl founder and 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 visionary. What would we have done without Claw? You know, with his all his eccentricities and and his points of view. You know, um, but yeah, I I I I have found that even with all the visitors that come to Bali here, where I am now, that the Australian visitors still. To, uh, to me, still reflect that fair go. And also, there'll be a lot of surf stars here. You know, Mick Fanning was here and uh, um, a lot of the, you know, Connor O'Leary, all these guys were here. And the Australian surfers would react very differently in public to these guys than the Americans or even, even you know, the fangirls or something, you know. And so, I don't know. I haven't been to Australia in quite some time, um, but I, it would be a real shame to lose that deep philosophy that you guys have as a nation. Yeah, man, it's a trip out. Like in my dealings in the surf media uh-huh. and industry, you know, meeting Calif- certain California surfers spring to mind where, you know, you could tell they were from wealth and they were successful, but they'd grown up in a culture where they'd been worshipped. And oh, yes. it was awkward, man. Like, like I didn't sure. know how to interact with someone who had grown up believing their own hype. And in a, yeah. in Australia, you, you can't, it's not possible. Yeah. Like you, you can't, you just can't grow up that way. Our, our culture does not allow you to believe your own hype. That the moment someone cops a whiff of you believing your own hype, you get it punched or knocked out of you. It, it, like either metaphorically or literally. So oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. And I'll tell you something else that really adds to this, that sometimes uh, goes over the head of Australians, the, the remarkable charm of your guys' nicknames. Okay. We don't have nicknames in the United States, not even our sports heroes, Tiger Woods. He doesn't have a nickname. Nobody has a nickname. Okay. But the Australians with these nicknames that are, that level the playing field, you know, you know, that just level friendships on the same, no matter where you are in any kind of social strata, that nickname brings everyone together. And I always wanted a, the Australians to give me a nickname. They never did, you know, but I always wanted one you know, because <laughs> it was such a badge of honor, you know, um, you know, the MR and, 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 and the, uh, you know, Kong and the, all these great, you know, um, and even the working class, you know, like Robbo and Jono and, you know, all this, it, it's, it just brings the Australian people together. And particularly because I've always believed that the surfing culture of Australia has been the weather vane and the tip of the spear of Australian culture. 
because you know most of you live on the coast you swim before you walk the ocean is a very very important part of your life a very integral part of your life and we're the ones you know surfers are the ones out there playing in it and i i've just always believed that that the australian surfing culture unlike america was vital to the australian identity i think you've been real lucky that way so lucky man i mean it's a, a massive island at the end of the day and yeah it, pretty well everyone does live on the coast uh and yeah i mean obviously we're making sweeping generalizations uh but that's that's what we do as riders sometimes um and that's what surfers do like you know the thing that really bugs me jed lately in this journalism journalism is these sissies you know that write like maybe perhaps arguably uh, the biggest swell uh, in the last three months. I'm like, oh, shut up, man. That's the biggest swell in the last decade. Just say it, you know, but it's arguably, ar you know, um, Kelly Slater, arguably the most successful competitive. What are, who, what are you smoking, man? You know, so I believe that surf journalists should continue to make bold calls. Make totally, the man. Call. I remember Derek Riley, uh, my first editor at, at Stab, made the point, or it might have been Fred Paul, but one of them was like, there is no such word, you know, you, sh you should never use words like seemingly, arguably, like it either is or it isn't. Like it's your, it. it's, it's your job to say what it is or isn't. I agree and, 100%. And, you know, Derek influenced my writing as well. He's still a dear friend. And that, that he almost he almost wrote brutally. And it really influenced me, I would say. D Derek influenced my writing definitely, and, and to this day. Mate, I want to get into your book shortly because it's a fucking ripper. Like, it's oh, so good. You, I mean, you, you've lived this insane life. You, you've met all of the greats. Like, you, you've not only met them, but you've, you've spent intimate moments with them. Slater, Curran. Shane Haran, I was reading that epic Gary profile. Uh, it's but, a wild time. Oh, it's wild. Before we get into all that, um, sure. I'd like to go back just to your early years, man, and and you find out a bit more about that. You mentioned growing up in Northern California. Mm -hmm. um, I, I understand you, your dad was in the, the Navy. Yep. And like, I mean, there's two things uh, running in parallel there. I guess you were itinerant, but at the same time, I guess you found your feet in surfing in Northern California. Um, so talk to us about, yeah, finding your feet in surfing in that part of the world. Sure. It's it's famously localized in parts. You know, there's a lot of, mm. of commercial dope growers and there's a, sure. a healthy outlaw uh, slash hippie counterculture vein running through the whole joint. What was it like growing up there? Well, I think I think it's important to first um, to first mention that yeah, we were a Navy family, and um, I was born in Maine, which is the far northeast. But of course, we left there when I was an infant, and we uh, we crossed uh, and my, uh, we crossed the Atlantic by by Navy transport. And um, I, my first schooling was in Nice, France, and so by the time <clears throat> sorry by the time it was 1967. My father was stationed at Pearl Harbor, and he was he was a very uh, rare thing at that time in 1967. He was a single father with three kids, myself, my older brother and my older sister. And so what and there was no such thing as daycare. So what he would do is he'd bring a, a, a slab of uh, Primo beer down to the Beach Boys at Waikiki and just go, look, keep an eye on these kids. They're really good swimmers. 
And so my brother Sam and I were taught how to surf by the great Beach Boys, uh, Rabbit Kakai, Leroy Choi. And my brother Sam and I were both pushed into the same wave at the same instant. So we, we've been surfing exactly the, the, the same period of time. My father was a, a Navy pilot that had become a Navy dentist and, um, you know, after World War II. And so our formative years were in Hawaii. And because of that Beach Boy uh, early days and, you know, surfing with, with the Beach Boys and with, you know, a, a young Michael Ho and all this, my brother and I have always had a great relationship with Hawaii. We've never had a problem on the North Shore. We've always had Omerita. We, we uh, you know, we are connected to the Kealanas. You know, so we, we never had to put up with any of the any of the acrimony of the whole North Shore scene. So then in uh, my father was then stationed in the San Francisco Bay in, a, in an island called Alameda. And that's what launched my my real formative years of surfing, that Northern California thing that you, you have. I've had the Aloha experience as a kid and now I'm in Northern California. And what I learned mostly about about what you're what you're talking about here is that the geography I mentioned it earlier the geography of the land was as important to me as the nature of the waves and we learned this from being around this incredible sensational beauty of northern california and big sur and the central coast when we went past the mason dixon line we called it when we went down to like los angeles or san diego or huntington beach we were confused to the point of almost being dizzy because we'd look to shore as we we're riding these waves and we're like, what is this? This this just mass urban cement jungle, you know, like we didn't get it. We're used to looking in at these great cliffs and these, you know, these this, this great weather, these great rivers and, you know, all the migration of the whales going past us. And, you know, we were used to a very natural environment. And I spent a lot of time in, in my Northern California years while I was surfing, looking towards shore. I really did. I just thought, wow, because to me, what I was surfing, the land doesn't stop at the water's edge. It just goes underwater. And I felt like I was still surfing the land, you know, that these waves were forming over. And it was a very different mindset. So we had a very deep love for environment and connection to the beauty of it. And as I mentioned earlier, that's why we loved Australia so much because you have so much beautiful coastline. Mm. Ah, it's fascinating, man. While you're talking, I was just kind of comparing in my head uh, your life to the other great senior surf scribe, William Finnegan, who wrote Barbarian Days. And, uh, you know, you're kind of like the blue collar battler son of a single dad version of uh, William Finnegan. Yeah. You, you both began yeah. your surf journeys in very similar circumstances in Hawaii. Almost identical, almost identical. Man, yeah. and reading your book, I was like, you know, it, it's a great book um, because, it, you know, as a, a journalist, you've shelved your ego and you've made it about everyone else. Yes. And I, I, but I, I do look forward to the sequel, man. There, there is a memoir. I know that it's you are- Somewhere saying, in there. Yeah, you, you say in the foreword, uh, or sorry, the foreword's by Kelly Slater, which is amazing. I'll get into that in a sec, but- um, yeah, in, in your kind of uh, uh, prologue or Preface. whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah, you talk about the fact that it isn't a memoir and you, you kind of make that point because, yeah, you, you I guess, uh, proud of that or, or, or whatever. But, yeah, just listening to your story now, man, it it is remarkable. Like uh, 
those beginnings, man. Like, fuck, that, that, that's crazy. And, and to think that your dad was a single dad, like, so he, he fought in World War II? He, uh, thank heavens, he just missed the show. They dropped the bomb right when he was headed off to fight in the Pacific Theater. He was flying a, a um, what was it, an F-6F uh, Hellcat aircraft, a single-seat fighter. And, you know, I'm glad he didn't go because that, uh, that meant I got to surf one day. You know? <laughs> so Totally. Yeah. But, you know, what's what's interesting about what you mentioned about this book, um, I think that one of the things that I find that I'm so proud of is that it's a collection of stories uh, that happened over 35 years. And so the book itself is a happening. It's not you don't read it from cover to cover. It's like a great bathroom book. You can just thumb through it and pick the story you want of, of these of these stories that have been published and these stories that have been, you know, part of the surfing lexicon and and it's not just a bunch of stories about a bunch of old guys. I mean, it, it, it's got everyone from, you know, Kelly Slater to John John Florence or, you know, it's, it's it, and, and it's a series of stories rather than um, it's a series of stories that you can digest in, in short periods of time. So in many ways, it's still um, I think it's still it would still be interesting to today's social media obsessed youth. I think this is a book that's very easy to manage in this modern world because you don't read it cover to cover. You you basically bring it along on a surf trip as a piece of equipment and inspiration. Um, you know, I, I believe that the stories in this book can actually make you surf better, you know, because you realize what a great eccentric wild tribe we belong to. What a bunch of characters are we, you know? And I, I think that's what's so inspiring about this book. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, you know, if you ever wanted to know about a surfing legend living or dead, the chances are they're in this book. You know, everyone <laughs> from Oki and, and Karen and Slater and Haran to Al Byrne, the late great Al Byrne to Kiala Kennelly. I mean, the opening Just story. Oscar Wright, you know, Ozzy's in Wright. there. Yeah. The, mate, the you opening story about uh about Bethany, Bethany Hamilton is just like it's as gripping and hard to read at the same time as anything I've read. Like it's it's so rattling, far out, man. What, what it takes, and what it takes is what I call my five day rule, where when I got these assignments to go do these things, um, I I let the subject, no, I'm not going to do this unless I spend five days with you. And I mean, with you, you know, the Rob Machado story, I slept at the foot of his bed on, on a couch, you know, um, I lived with Shane Haran in his, in his, in his, uh, his compound, his, his, you know, his, his compound. Um, I lived with the Bethany Hamilton family. We became friends, you know, 25 days after she'd lost her arm. Uh, and it was, it, 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 it was influenced by of of all things that early journalism that you mentioned about rolling stone and tracks and all that because rolling stone you know used to be backstage man and that magazine definitely influenced me because the the profiles on oh i don't know led zeppelin or whatever it was always from the backstage point of view and nowadays when you read these celebrity um these celebrity profiles in some of these magazines, you, you realize that the journalist got 15 minutes with a tape recorder in a cafe while six more journalists from six other magazines are waiting in queue, you know, and you get nothing, you get nothing. So I insisted that 
I wasn't going to do this unless these people had the courage to let me come live with them. And that's what made the difference. That's where you learn Lane Beachley's real name. And that's where you learn that Mark Ockloop had a difficult relationship with his father. And that's where you learn the, these things that we can relate to that is relatable. You know, wow, like these guys have, you know, Kelly Slater came from nothing, sleeping on the floor underneath a moving blanket. Yes. You know, and I think a lot of us can relate to this. And that's why I was so passionate about telling these stories from having lived with these people. I think I think that otherwise it's just too much of a surface. For example, right now, everybody's Bethany Hamilton on, on uh, social media. You wake up, you hop in your ice bath, you have your croissant. Here's my great breakfast. It's my wife's birthday. Here's my happy, smiling family. And I know for a fact they're all getting in fistfights. And so it's like, you know, what is this? You know, wh where is the relatability? The reason that we deserve to have profiles that like the ones you will find in this book in deep is because these people influence us, Jed. We wear the clothes that they're shilling, that the companies are pushing on us. We want to be like them. We surf like them. We get boards like them. We want to be them. And we deserve to know who the hell they are. Mm, mm. Well said. And, you know, you, you talk about spending five days with people. Uh, and, yeah, incredible to read the the story on Slater that basically announced him to the world, that 1989 piece for Surfer Magazine. And as you mentioned, like, it, it's something that's been totally lost in the narrative about Slater. And I, I can only put that down to uh, maybe it, it's the, the American media's lack of interest in that kind of underdog story. Like, I feel like if he was Australian, uh, his, his hard scrabble beginnings would have been much more celebrated maybe because it's weird that like, we'll get into the nitty gritty of, of how tough he was doing it, but that's just completely lost in, in the, the narrative of Kelly's life. And for that reason, he he's really struggled to, get respect in in certain sections of the Australian surfing community in particular, like a lot of his peers from his time on tour. Yeah. You know, they don't have necessarily the best things to say about him. Um, it was almost as though like he was considered an elite. Um, and that is so interesting. And I agree with you a hundred percent. You've made such a good point. America is about winning, 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 winning. They don't really want to hear about anyone until they win okay that's not true in australia you know they want to know what kind of aussie battler or what kind of struggle this person has had and it goes back to the fair go it goes back to the tall poppy syndrome it goes back to the the australian philosophy of we are human beings you know and and kelly when he burst onto the scene oh he had it so easy are you out of your mind he had a difficult uh, youth with a with a, a absentee father and a mother that held four jobs and uh, you know living at sleeping on the floor and going to high school and like this guy he fought his way out of that now sure he was recognized as the messiah at 17 18 19 years old but guess what so was Mick Fanning all right Mick Fanning won bells at 16 years old so Yes, Kelly became a winner by the time he was 19 and certainly a world champion at 20. 
But those early days of his on the East Coast with crappy surf and living in a difficult town that was, you know, and 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 having, you know, problems with the family and a overworked, wonderful mother. And, you know, th these this is such an important part of his story. And I think it's why we've always remained friends. I think it's also why he wanted to do the foreword for this book. When he heard about that, I was making it. He just called me up and said, hey, I got to be part of this. And I said, boy, do you ever? Because, you know, there's there's some Kelly stories in here, man. And his he he he's been taken out of context so much because of his because of his, you know, Ulysses type profile. But this is a very, very understandable human being that just happened to have a remarkable skill at the right time. And I'm really glad that you pointed that 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 point out because yeah, America. Like America sold him to the world as a born winner. Yeah, as this Disney kind of Tony yeah. Hawk uh, replica, exactly. like this guy who's like the the, the super mar marketable pretty boy, like success exactly. story. When in reality, he's one of three to a single mom sleeping, like uh, well, like paint the scene for us in his house. It's a, you know he was sleeping on mattresses on the floor, surrounded by boxes of his surf trophies. Like <laughs> exactly. dad's an, an absent alco. Um, you know, him, him and Fanning's story, when I think about it, it's pretty much the same story. And it's we, very similar, mate. That's why I mentioned like, I think Mick was one of four, um, again, absent father. And we actually talk a lot about this in pro surfing, that there is this almost like single mother syndrome. Medina, sure. single mom. John sure. John, single mom. Fanning, yeah. single mom. Slater, single mom. Like all yeah. the goats. That are basically coming from these really hard scrabble existences where all they had in life was the waves and their ability to surf those. And that was a place where they could find some level of self-esteem and satisfaction purely from just tearing the bag out of it. They would get love. They That's would get, um, you know, people, you know, they would, they would feel good about themselves. It was probably the only place they could feel good about themselves. Yes. And thank, thank heavens they were, blessed with this remarkable ability now it also directly relates to what they do on the face of a wave and what they look like for example rob machado who who i i would like to mention he he recently uh lost his father and i wish him the best he's going through a time now because they were very close but the reason rob machado surfs so beautifully and that it to me is the best description of of rob machado surfing is beautiful is because he came from a simple family, but it was a loving household. It was a tight, loving household. Yeah, they had a little house in Oceanside up on the hill, but the you know the father was supportive, and they just thought he was great. And the mother was there baking cookies, and you know this family, which which is why the latest tragedy of losing his father has been taken so so devastatingly, is because yes, Rob also came from a very simple background. But it was together, man. It wasn't acrimony. It wasn't crazy. Um, and look at the way he serves. He serves gracefully and beautifully. The way that a secure human being, being raised in a secure family, would. He would not surf desperately the way that Kelly does or Mick Fanning or these, these, these young people, you know, the Dingo Morrisons and, you know, these fantastic surfers that have had to surf or die. Yeah, that's a great point, mate. Like Machado, he surfs with grace and love 
and flow <laughs> and like he's exactly. just he's in the sweet spot of life in in and that translates into his surfing and and then you look at his competitive career and yeah he he never really reached the heights he should have and when he had the chance he got duped by Slater with this like suspect high five in a pipe masters semi-final whatever it was and that was like such a classic metaphor between a guy who's hungry and a guy who's not and I mean you know I yeah and that Slater you know Slater I guess that's one of the reasons Slater lost a little bit of respect in Australia it was just some of his tactics were, were questionable mm-hmm. over the years. And there was some guys here had issues with that, but, uh, mate, to be honest, like in the theater of sport and competition, um, you know, I come from a background where, uh, you know, I grew up playing a lot of different combat sports or mostly football and like, yep. you know, like fuck people are doing pretty bad shit to each other to get the win. So like, um, I think it's it, once the, the, the whistle goes, it's yeah. it's pretty much all fair game short of, you know, permanently or um, yeah. seriously injuring someone. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'd like to weigh in on that because I've spent a lot of time with Kelly and I've spent a lot of time with Rob. That I think that the, the reportage on that moment, that high five is one of the great crimes in the history of surfing because it's not true. This was a natural moment between two surfers having the time of their lives. And I've talked to them both and I've looked them straight in the eye and I've asked them straight up. And they were out there in that perfect surf, two good friends out in that perfect surf, surfing in a semifinal and they were mates. And it was so easy because the surf was pumping. It was offshore. It was beautiful. Everything was great and the whole thing. Both of them were surfing. Both of them were surfing well uh, it was one of the first times Rob had ever had any room at Pipeline. Rob, if you look back for photos and films, does you don't see him at Pipeline a lot because he hated crowds and he couldn't take that pressure play. Kelly, of course, you know, would gird for battle and go out there with his claymore and start chopping heads off, you know. <laughs> but that high five moment was misreported. And I'm not just saying this because it was between two Americans. That was a... That was a mate moment between those two surfers that got blown into something completely else. And that's my call. Yeah. It was a, a perfect mate moment that led to Kelly getting priority and not Rob. <laughs> well, yeah, sure it was. And and I of course and it's the way that we talked about Rob's beauty. He wasn't looking for that. You know, yeah. But mind you, he was number two in the world. I, I would say that that's an incredible competitive achievement. You know, I mean, number two—that's not bad, Jed. But it's just an interesting character study, isn't it? Because if Kelly's in yeah. Rob's position, he's probably more fixated on getting priority than slapping his bro down in that moment. Or if he slaps him down, he's still conscious of what he needs to get priority and, and maintain his stranglehold on that hate. Don't I, you reckon? I agree. I agree a hundred percent with you, Jed. I agree with that. Had Kelly been on that wave, he, he probably wouldn't have thought of the high five, but the fact that Rob did and Kelly responded in, in kind, he responded in the moment. I mean, that was Rob's trip and that was Kelly's trip, you know, but I don't think it was exactly Kelly Slater as snidely whiplash, you know, sharpening his handlebar mustache going, I know what to do now (laughs) that it was, that it was, that it was depicted that way. I think is one of the great, great crimes. However, I am a storyteller and I do believe in mythology 
And I believe in surfing's mythology. And by God, I've created a lot of it. And I'm all for it. So I'm not trying to take that moment away from anybody. Uh, I'm just telling you what I believe it was. Yeah. And, and it was a magic moment. It's more memorable than world titles. Like, far out. That, that, like, there's heaps of people who've won world titles uh, who I can't remember. But I remember that moment. And yeah. interestingly, we had uh, Kelly and Oki on the show once in Torquay at the Torquay Bolo. And Oki yes. actually hit him with that conspiracy theory. And uh, yeah, Kelly didn't didn't take it too well. He, he wasn't pleased um, and, oh, and, no. and and fired back and essentially said what you said. And yeah. It's no, always I, bothered him. It's always bothered Kelly. I bet, it's yeah. Mate, um, yeah. Where, like, there's just so many good stories in this book. I, I was tripping on the one about uh, Cecil Carell uh, and, and this uh, – yeah, this remote island, uh, I believe it was home to a uh, this like one of the last islands to fall in World War Two, and uh, there was there was there was a an old man living on this island, and uh, there was a, I think it was the same island where uh, the last Japanese soldier lived before he he yeah. gave himself yeah. up yeah. in yeah. 1974, and uh, yeah. some bizarre like. Islander, there was there was not only a Japanese soldier living there until 1974, believing that America was still at war with Japan, but there was a, a an African American soldier living on the same island, fleeing the war, um, who just decided. Isn't it amazing? Like, Mate, it's Isn't a crazy amazing? story, unbelievable. It's, it's, it's an island called it's an island called Moratai, and it's, That's right. it's it, and it's uh, you know it's 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 northeastern. Um, uh, northeastern Indonesia. You don't hear a lot about it. And me and Jason Childs, <clears throat> the great Australian photographer, the great Jason Childs, he invited me to go there because he'd seen something very special. And those were these little kids that were carving their surfboards out of the jungle, okay, with the with the, with their parents' axes and knives, okay. And he wanted to go back and do a story on this. And I thought, man, I'm in on that one, okay. So we we get to Moratai. And that second night when when Cecil, the old man, you know, with the roomy eyes and the rattling voice, started to tell this tale about that African-American Marine who went AWOL and stayed behind, you know, and married and had children in this village. And I was sitting with the descendants of these things. And he was the guy that taught the village how to surf in World War II. That's 1940. 1940 1944 something 40 whatever and here he was and he taught these people how to surf and and here are these little kids so stoked on surfing that they're carving their wooden surfboards out and this is the kind of story that only surfers come across because we travel with purpose we travel to find liquid gold out there we don't just show up to have a, uh, you know, an umbrella drink on the beach and relax. And, you know, we don't do that. We're there seeking something that we desire. And that takes getting into the culture or you will not find those waves. So we find ourselves sitting in these huts and we find ourselves sitting with these people telling these incredible stories that somehow, Jed, I don't know how, always come back to surfing somehow, you know, and I, I'm just so proud to have been part of that that legacy. And I can only encourage any young people that are listening to us right now, get out there, man. Get out there because 
it is it is noble to go seek these waves and as and i'm sure you would agree with me jed the greatest the greatest surfing explorers have all been australian yeah yeah peter troy uh martin daly but mike boyham he was an american uh i mean he's right up the the, the top there too and but i'm, I'm so glad you, you you what you really did there is just put your finger on something that is been the most uh, influential thing in my life, and that is surf travel. And you made such a good point there. Like travel generally is little more than an exercise in seeing some touristic sites, right? Because when you go to a country, what else is there? You don't speak the language. Uh, you know, all you know is is what is famous about that place, and that's what everyone else knows too. So you end up in these places that are basically the same no matter where you go on earth. Like whether you go to Anchor Wat or the Taj Mahal, Tower, the Eiffel Tower, Tower what, you're going to run sure. into the same thing. It's catered towards tourists. Whereas surfers, this is the fucking <laughs> beauty of it, man. It's like <laughs> there's even like, so A, we've got purpose, like you said, to find this liquid gold. And that that purpose more broadly is we're engaged in connecting with nature. That's why we travel is to, is to connect with nature. And I feel like we get a little cosmic tap on the bum from the universe, from Gaia, from whatever it is up there, if there is anything up there. But it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like you guys have the right idea. You're out there. You don't want you don't want to hurt anyone. You don't want to take anything. You just want to go play in the water of this place. And as and as a result, those intentions are so pure that like not only do people recognize that in you, but I feel like the planet recognizes it in you. And, and it becomes this super instrumental kind of change in your life where you just learn and and you're exposed to so many different cultures, colors, and creeds that you just develop this like super worldly, compassionate, forgiving take on things. Like, whereas, you know, alternatively, you could just be this person in a fucking racial or political silo judging the other as being different, but you just can't be that after surfing your whole life. You've you've experienced compassion and kinship with too many colors and creeds to ever be a narrow-minded bigot. Yes. In many ways, surfers stopped the Vietnam war, you know, Um, with the, they led protest surfers. I'm not going, that's crazy. I, you know, I've been there. I've surfed Vietnam. I'm not, what, what are you talking about? So, the thing that I also wanted to mention about the the cosmic tap on the shoulder, I am a deep, deep believer in that cosmic connection of of going back into the ocean, that atavistic return to to where you know we all crawled from, and it gives me the concept that surfing, if you're really into it, is not so much a wave as it is a place. You know, it's a place that we want to be. And that place, like, say you go to Neos, you're going there to get back to get back in one of those beautiful barrels at Neos. Like you're going to go back and you are going to find yourself in that place. But that place is also that culture that you come across the, in your travels, getting there. And then once being there, you take all that culture and you bring it back into that barrel with you, that place. And so surfing is as, as much a, as much a place as it is um, an act of play, 
you know, and, and it's a remarkable thing to be able to jump off the edge of a continent, to be in that place. And, and if, if, if you can't get some cosmic feelings from that man, I don't know, you, 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 you know, you need a, you need to be hit across the head with a cricket bat. Totally. And we have to be careful about how outcome focused we become with extracting those cosmic feelings. Like, you know, you can get it like those kids on Moritai from being on a, a wooden plank. They've made themselves as much as you can from getting a stand tall at Nias. As long as your, as long as your attitude is the right one. Uh, so like, I feel like the one thing that is devouring surfing is like this kind of freaking wave capitalism where the apex predators are just trying to take more resources than they're entitled to. They're trying to belittle people around them in, gotcha. in their goal to secure more of this resource, which they don't even remember because they've stuffed 20 pits in a row. And like, there's just <laughs> fucking, you know, stepping off jet skis into their 50th tube of the day. Like this. You're, you're not talking, you're not talking about snapper rocks. Are you now? Come on. Uh, that's holy. Ground, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, could be Kira, could be Neas, could be uh heaps sure. of places that, that, that kind yeah. of mentality is almost the prevailing one at the moment in surfing where people are just on this, on this hell ride to stuff their face in as many pits as they can consequences be damned, spiritual connection, be damned, everything else be damned. It's just pure, tube gluttony and yeah. uh adrenaline fueled addiction well i think a lot of that has to do with social media and what it's done to us you know it has reduced all our feelings and even conversations like you and i are having right now down to an emoji you know uh the, and and you know there'll be a remarkable surfing incident like say nathan florence's to ride on on that on that slab in the middle of nowhere, that remarkable wave. Now, I think that deserved some examination, some discussion. And all it gets on social media is an emoji of a little piece of fire, or somebody smiling with their hand over their head, or someone saying "sick," you know. And this is now, this is now the expression of surfing. When when before, even on our on all our road trips that every surfer has to take, whether it's walking from your house, you know, two blocks down to Burley Heads or whether it's trying to find some wave in the Maldives, right? It's that conversation that we have about this and the context and the consideration of surfing. Now, surfing in today's surfing media has this patina of goofiness. Like it's all something to laugh at and you know, you watch Stab High and, and this aerial contest and they're joking and laughing. You know, the judges are ha ha ha. It's all so ridiculous. And, and it just drives me absolutely crazy. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we all have to discuss war and peace, you know, every time we get together. But we we need this outlet to be able to express this act that has dominated our lives and that we love, love as deep as we love our lovers and our parents. You know, we need to be able to talk about this or it does fall into the silly. Yeah. We're in a dicey situation now with YouTube and, and social media where a lot of surfers, a lot of free surfers, pro surfers rely on that as an income and, and their way of generating sure. income is essentially to go to, you know, barely filmed or recently discovered waves 
and put some catchy headline on there and, and blow them out for their own financial means. And nothing contravenes surf culture more than that. Like when I was growing up, the whole concept of putting a photo of yourself in a public forum and oh, bragging whoa, it, bragging whoa. about some wave you caught, yeah. mate, you just you wouldn't dare. Be, you just, you just never. A, social suicide. You'd be fucking laughed out of your board writers club. You just wouldn't be able to go to the pub. You'd be living in, uh, I don't know, you'd have to move towns. It just would be a nightmare. You'd have to move to Dubbo, you know? You'd have to it's move. That's where my family's from pretty much. I would have just been back out at Forbes fucking working in a butcher. Uh, five, about mile, five miles from gun to guy, five miles from the dog of the Tucker box, mate. You know? Exactly. Jeez. But now like... It's like, do you even surf if you don't have 20 photos of yourself getting tubed on social media? Did you even get barreled if it's not on social media? Like, there's just something awful about it. And it's all what it is, is essentially bragging or humble bragging and self-congratulations. And it's fucking awful, man. Like, surfing used to be about you let your surfing do the talking and other people will let it be known whether you rip or not. It's not up to you to decide that fact. It's not up to you to celebrate that fact. But sure. uh, we, we, we've, it really bothers me the way professional surfers are using their surfing ability and their uh, access and intel for these waves to make a living at the expense of what is a resource of the commons. Those waves do not belong to professional surfers. They belong to us, the people. And uh, it's not up to them to exploit them for their financial gain. Like where the fuck's my cut, cunt? Like cough up. I like like that wave too. Like why should you film it and make some money off getting hits on YouTube or whatever? It shits me to tears. No, I understand. And and I can, I can really hear your passion in that. And, you know, when it comes to the visual media and all these clips that need to be done and the and the hunger and, and desire, I mean, that you, you have to put these clips up constantly like you are. Social media is so distracting to the truth because you have to be so on it. Um, I I um, hired a, a young lady to promote my book on Instagram. I created an Instagram and I did it and I lasted about three weeks before I went to her and I just said, this is ridiculous, you know? And she goes, yeah, you got to understand that. If you're going to like try to shill something, try to sell something, it's it's 60 hours a week, man. I mean, it's a, you're not putting any time into this at all. And I'm like, well, that's why I hired you. She goes, no, man, it takes a team. It takes filmers. It takes it takes total commitment to, to this social media or you're just going to fall by the wayside. And I learned a big lesson. I just got out. I just got out of it. My Instagram now is just a post saying, if you want to buy a really cool book, here it is. That's it. You know, um, and I know that that's the, you know what they say, social suicide, but it brings up an important point, the thing you made. And that is, there's two movies I'd like to compare with you right now. Okay, now I'm going to go way back into the past and mention Morning of the Earth, okay, by Albie Fowlson. Okay, of course. Now, I believe it's a movie that, you know, every 12-year-old Australian surfer should sit down and watch, okay? One of the most astonishing things about that movie was what it what it captured. It captured a truth. And what was so astonishing to me is when I walked out of the theater after seeing that, my head was spinning. Uh, and this was, I didn't realize until I was halfway home on my little bicycle that there wasn't a single word of narration in Morning of the Earth. 
it was a clip. It was this big, long, truthful clip. And it was, and it was, the story was told through music and lyrics. Now I want to compare that to another movie I just saw two nights ago that I really liked, but really displays the difference between capturing the truth and capturing what you can. It's a movie called Kangs, and it's just come out by Rip Curl. Yeah, well, my co-host Vaughn made it, but yeah, I know the film. I know, yeah, I know Vaughn very well, and please send him my love. Okay, so anyway, um, it was really well made, but the difference in it is that it's three entitled professional surfers brought to secret waves and filmed very simply and um, intersected by them, you know, buying a meat pie at the Golden Fleece. You know, like, well, where's the insight? What, what is the meaning of it? I'm glad that, you know, Gabriel and, and Mick and, uh, and Mason had a good time, you know, but where is the, the meaning to me for the proletariat, for the, you know, from everyone from that 12-year-old kid I'm talking about at Burley Heads, to people like me, you know, in 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 my sixties that are, are still passionate surfers, what what do I? I'm sorry, what do I get out of this? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point, and you know, that's the problem with a lot of surf films is that they're made by surf filmers, right? So they're not storytellers; they're they're people who who sit there on the beach and, and shoot elite surfing. Uh, and, and telling a story is its own skill. It takes as long to learn how to tell a story as it does to learn how to surf. Like it's a 10,000 hours kind of deal. It's a fucking I nightmare. Agree. Yeah, I agree. It's a nightmare. And, um, you know, Vaughn ultimately didn't shoot that film. He was, he just uh, cut it together. Um, mm. And, you know, I'm not throwing shade at the guy who did shoot it. That's just the nature of all surf films is that generally the people who are there to, to film it aren't, trained journalists there to um you know unpick the story sometimes the surfers aren't even happy to um really be there to talk to them yeah be there it, for interviews it, and stuff yeah it's it's the caption i'll tell you what i think vaughn is one of the great thinking minds in surfing and i think he's been that way since a very young age and so i'm not throwing shade at vaughn's movie at all um, I mean, that thing he did with the with the stop act, the claymation thing, that's so genius. What was that called? The greatest surf movie ever made? Yeah. That approach, that approached genius in my in my opinion. Um, and so it's this context that we're talking about. And I was sitting with Claw Warbeck just the other day and we came up with two things. Um, one, I've always believed that there should be an annual symposium of the great thinking minds. And I think it should take place at Bell's Beach in their great surfing museum there. And you get a program together where in the first night you talk about design and the future of it. And then the next one is competition. What are we doing with it? And the next one is performance. What's going on? And the next one is materials. What are we doing? You know, so we have this this visionary meeting of minds. And, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about all the usual suspects I'm about getting people like Vaughn, Derek Hine. Uh, Doug Warbrick, uh, you know, Morris Cole, you know, they're just thinking Tom Curran, get him in there for entertainment, you know, like and get these points of view so that we can so that we can give our sport in the age of social media inundation so that we can give our sport, our beautiful sport, 
context and meaning. Um, I would like to organize. I've been trying to organize that for 20 years. Now, I just want to mention as an aside, the genius idea that Claw came up with, because we started asking each other questions. And I said, Claw, what's, what's the problem with the tour? Just tell me the problem. He goes, it doesn't have a big wave event. And I went, bingo. You're right. I never thought about that. How would you do it? And he goes, here's how I'd do it. Okay. There would be a code red clause in everybody's contract on the tour. Okay. And it would be either, uh, it would either be cloud break or ship sterns, he said. Okay. And there would be a code red clause where if a giant code red swell came in, in between these tournaments, right? You would be legally bound to go and surf in this thing, okay? And if you didn't, you know, you'd lose those points, you know? And I just went, Claude, that is genius. Can you imagine how how exciting that would be? Where these guys, all of a sudden, it's it's 20-foot cloud break, and here's the big wave event of the, you know, of the year, right? And wow, wow, man. I mean, if we have a wave pool contest, we've got to have the other end of the spectrum, man. A hundred percent. We say it pretty much every episode that me and Vaughn do. The the world tour should essentially be held at least 50% in slabs. Like that's where surfing is. You know, for a long time, surfers simply couldn't ride slabs. They were the preserve of the bodyboarder. But now board technology and ability has gotten to a point where we can very much surf slabs. And yet it's just not represented on the world tour. There's there's almost none. Chopes and uh, pipelines. In the box, maybe. The box and Margaret River, maybe. Yeah, but they never run there. Like they had the opportunity to run there on that last event there, and they just flat out didn't run on a cooking day out there. And we could not believe it. That was the one opportunity uh, this year on tour to have a day in consequential waves, and and they brushed it. It was for a, a rippable but somewhat fat right across the bay. And like for me, man. I struggle to watch sports unless there's some skin in the game, unless there's some risk of injury or like, uh, you know, I like to see people's courage tested um, and, and like the, the, the intersection of courage and skill for me yeah. is like the most compelling part of sport. All the sports I really adore have those two ingredients, except for competitive surfing. There's just very little courage required to compete at the elite level. I think I think that um, I think you you you've you settled on something very important here, and it's about the the measure of a man, the measure of a woman, the character, you know, the character of, of these people. You the know? Uh, dare I say it? Great. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But yes, I mean, you know, I we deserve to see this character tested, you know. Uh, like they do in downhill skiing or, 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 you know, half pipe uh, snowboarding or, and, you know, the, the to, to see the measure of these people, you know, I, I think it's really, I think it's really important. And so I was really, I was really turned on by what Klaus said. I said, a code red clause, man, you know, we should all lobby for it. You know, I think it's fantastic. That's it, mate. Dust off the placards. Let's hit the street. You and me, Matt, we'll lead the That's charge. Us, mate. Hey, come on. I've been, I've I've marched shoulder to shoulder with Vaughn in all the poo marches. By God, we've shut that down. You know, <laughs> I was proud of that, boy. Now proud. it's time to shut some more horse shit down. The current iteration of the world tour. But, Burn it uh, to the ground, man. Back to some of these iconic stories. I I really want to get you 
get inside your your head of what you saw when you were at Goonan, Gary, with Shane Horan. He's a alumni of uh, Scum Valley, like myself, and uh, one of the most enigmatic, progressive, talented surfers uh, of all time, no doubt about yes. it. And as much as I love his surfing, what I also love about the guy is just how courageous he was in embracing. Oh yes new lifestyles, new, new systems of operating, uh, you know, obviously took the stand uh, against apartheid. Uh, he was like this, this guy who was like way into like fasting and macrobiotic diets and uh, LSD and uh, you know, meditation, yoga, like all of these things, like, like 20 years, 30 years before they, they really hit the mainstream um, and, and he was derided for a lot of this. He was seen as a, a, a weirdo and um, yes. you know, like mocked because he fucking come up short against MR like four times in a row. I mean, you're, you're, you're up against uh, an absolute competitive Adonis. And yeah, far out, man. He went toe-to-toe with arguably like the second greatest male competitor yeah. of all time and lost. And, and board technology was in a state of flux. And I guess he backed yeah. the wrong horse there, but Again, like, you know, it was all experimenting and avant-garde. And, um, mate, you got to see inside what was one of the most, uh, like, controversial in ways chapters in, in, in any oh, yes. high-profile surfer's life. You, you went and looked at Shane as he was going through this this meltdown slash rebirth in the, the hippie hills of Byron at Gary. What was that like, man? Well, I'd known Shane for so long and, you know, I always, <clears throat> I always looked at him as a ward of the pro tour. I never saw any guidance. He, he was, he was very much alone. He was just sort of a ward to professional surfing, like an orphan to the professional surfing. Let's not forget that he was a, you know, a, one of those hard scrabble kids you're talking about from Bondi. And let's not forget that he was the Australian uh, champion skateboarder. And he had these incredible physical skills. And my God, the guy's massive strength that this man still has. But even back then, the standing next to him was like standing next to a radiator. He just he radiated strength and 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 um conviction. And so when I heard that he, in my opinion, when I went to find in Gunungary, I went to find Shane finding himself finally, because I believe he was an Australian surfer who had been told who he is. You're a talented, you're a, you got a shock of white hair. You got the white zinc on your nose. You know, you're, you're, you're beautiful. You're, you're powerful. Uh, you're an incredible competitor, a, a remarkable tube rider. And he invented the floater. Let's not forget that. And, you know, here was this incredible person who finally reached an adult age and just said, you know what? I'm going to go way out there and I'm going to find myself. And that's what I went to see. And that's why it was such a story of vulnerability. The courage it took for him to let me do that, because he, you know, we knew each other. He knows who I am. He knows what I've done. And he said, bring it on. This is part of this experience. I want to see what an outside mind, you know, would think of what's going on here. And I just, that story saddened me because I was such a fan of Shane. And I saw him swirling around in, in this world of trying to find himself. And I so wished that he would. And he eventually did, of course. And, and we remained friends. 
But I told that story of a man finding himself in the middle of the swirl of it all. And this experimentation that took courage and those those surfboards and working with Ben Lexon and, and, you know, the, the, you know, putting his money where his mouth is, you know, and doing this, you know, I, I just thought it was remarkable and going out there and living with him for a week out there um, was just so moving to me. And, and it, it was in, in many ways, it was, I felt sad for him because I wanted him to be Shane, I wanted him to win at all this again. I wanted him to win as he'd always done in his life as a champion, you know, and as that colorful person with the colorful boards and, you know, so it was an experience that was both, I witnessed great courage. I witnessed great vulnerability and I walked away with sadness. And I think that is reflected in the story because I saw a very, I saw a very celibate and very lonely Shane Haran during that week. Yeah. And that decision to step away from competitive surfing and, and find himself, I mean, that kind of paved the way for current to do the same Slater yeah. to do the same. Like that, that's almost the rite of passage now in any elite competitive career is to just step back for a bit, surf the waves you want to surf, surf the way you want to surf. And, uh, yeah, and surf, you know, the, and surf the boards you want to surf. Exactly, because that's what it's about, right? That's why we sure. all started doing this shit. It wasn't to win heats, that's for sure. And no, like, it, no. it, it must fucking drain those guys at the pointy end, having to surf to these conventions in this format on these boards. Like, I can't imagine how exhausting that is for guys who ultimately became so good at this sport or pastime because they simply love the sensations of it. So to, to deprive yourself of all these other sensations and that, that must be hard to deal with. Um, let alone, well, you know, it's, an, it's interesting. You raise that point. I'm sorry to interrupt Jed. Sorry. You just, you, you get me very excited. Um, going back to Vaughn's movie with, with, with Kangs, when you see Gabriel Medina free surfing and you realize, well, wait a minute. He, he's not surfing like he's in the heat. He's surfing like, he he wants to catch that wave in the middle of nowhere. Wait a minute, hang on. What what's he doing? I mean, you watch that movie, and Gabriel Medina is not surfing a heat. He's surfing like he's digging being out in the ocean. And it I, I and I think Vaughn really captured that feeling in that movie. And it was because you know Mason Ho always does that, you know. And Mick Fanning is is so remarkable that you know he can walk down the beach and it's the best wave you've ever seen you know but so but you see Gabriel Medina free surfing like he's enjoying himself and and it's shocking and I think Vaughn really captured that yeah uh, mate one of the greatest things you can ever experience in life and I've had the chance twice is to see Medina free surf up close it's, oh wow it's outrageous. It's, it's like, it's, 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 there's no words. It's in that Emmanuel Kant, uh, realm of the sublime, like, and yeah, I guess like, you know, he's never even put out a surf section. I can't think of one and he's never given himself that opportunity to, to, to go searching like Tom Curran or, you know, like, so I would, I would love to see it. I, you know, 
I don't really know what there is left for him to achieve competitively unless he wants to try and like win fucking 12 world titles or something like obviously that's, that's unlikely um, slash impossible. So yeah, yeah I, I do wonder what's there for him in the competitive space and, and why he doesn't just get on exactly like that. Get on the search campaign with Mick and Mason. What an yes. amazing trio. And I hope that really is where he stays. I just hope they stay the fuck out of joints like Kang's went to. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, right. I, I'm glad. I'm glad you you brought that that kind of contradiction up because there's a, a few of our fans have made the same point about you know we complain about certain pro surfers going to that part of the world and not others, but I I, I should just make the point that there is a slight nuance. Uh, hold on, there is a slight nuance there uh, with the way we document slash film and photograph surf spots. And those nuances have to be understood. So like in that part of the world, the waves they shot are unknown waves. There's, there's, there's known waves down there. And although I'd rather not see them on film, yes. I, I do know that they're on the map. They are, don't, yeah, they're, they're just, they're just fairly popular. The locals are, are pretty conciliatory in those spots and then there's spots down there that aren't on the map and haven't been shot and should not be shot. But surfers have gone down there and done that. Uh, and I think like it's a, this constantly moving border um, where, yeah, you kind of have to know where the, the line is and it's a, it's not a, mm -hmm. sta it's not a static line. It's, it's moving around the place and, and, and the goalpost shifts. So, yeah, the, the real core lords know where the line is in, in that part of the world and they're in contact with the community there and yeah. uh, and making sure everything's sweet. And and I could tell that Kang's was that kind of film where yes. that there was spots that they left off and, and didn't go to and that the ones that they did were were known enough. Yeah. Um, so th that was an important point. Well, hey, I, mate, I agree with you. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I know I've been agreeing with you all day long, but it's because you're raising very good points. And it's a real pleasure to talk to another thinking mind. So I thank you for that. Um, yeah, I've been down in that that I've been down in that zone of surfing. And one of my favorite stories of of localism, other than, of course, the famous Moose, who used to play with his band hanging upside down in gravity boots. Okay. And I <laughs> no way. Yeah, and I've witnessed that. Okay. Well, so anyway, up and on one of my, oh, one of my favorite, I shouldn't yeah. have said that. Anyway. Oh shit. One of my favorite stories, uh, I think is coming out of uh, Marion Bay or something. But anyway, one of my favorite stories was these 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 guys pull up, you know, outsiders pull up, you know, they're they're and they're all ready to go and they're all excited. They go out and they go surfing and they come back and the local surfers have kidnapped their girlfriends. <laughs> They've kidnapped their girlfriends and they're driving them to the to the South Australian border as they speak. As these guys come in, getting out of their wetsuits, hey, where's our girls? You know, and the guy steps forward. Sorry, mate, they're on their way to the South Australian border. We're going to leave them at the Golden Fleece. Uh, we hope you go pick them up. And these guys had to get in their car and go get their girlfriends. It's so funny to me. I mean, that's wow. great. That, that is great wow. locally. You know, at fantastic. least it all ended well. At least they didn't end up decomposing in acid in a barrel locked in a yeah, exactly, vault at a exactly. town called Snowtown. No, these, these guys picked them up. You know, they picked up their girls. And actually, uh, the rumor is that one of the girls was going to stick around with one of the locals. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> so it all worked out. It's possible. Man, one of the things I admire about your journey is uh, that you've traversed incredible terrain and experiences in life. And I think that's kind of the job of the journalist and the writer is to really get out there and experience worlds far beyond surfing. I mean, fuck, like as good as it is, like there's a a big wide world out there and, um, you know, that big wide world affords you perspective on surfing which everyone needs and you've really done this man uh you know sometimes i i think of you like almost like you're a character out of apocalypse now but i'm not sure if it's dennis hopper the journalist or marlon brando's <laughs> character who you know goes up <laughs> maybe a combination and... of both <laughs> yeah i think it is a combination of both and like just like ripping through a few of the things you've done man like uh i read that you 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 uh, did like jet ski res- rescues in uh, New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Can, can you paint the scene and explain how you ended up there? Yeah, um, that's real easy. Um, it was. It, it all started with the biggest wave in the world, and that was the 2004 tsunami. Um, I'll keep the story as short as I can. I went over there to do this, do the story on the tsunami, of course, because it was you know so important to you know the Mentawai and and that whole Indonesian zone. And I looked around and realized that the global aid world is useless and wasteful and horrible and uh, corrupt and terrible. And all of a sudden, like some sort of angel from heaven, Bill Sharp, who was running the Billabong Odyssey at that point, he was there to cover the story, too. And he found me and just go, isn't this ridiculous? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, I tell you what, I'm going to go get a bunch of money from Billabong. We're going to do it ourselves. And I said, I'm I'm in. So he got Bill Sharp, the angel, got all this money and we rented our own charter boat and we loaded it up with stuff that we knew people needed because we were surfers that have, you know, been in those islands. And we got out there before anybody, you know, and we were we were helping people, you know, with their with their villages and what they need and rice and food. We even brought goats, you know, that to replace their livestock. We did all this stuff. And it was very oh, well, I thought you were talking. I thought you meant. Like Slater, Beachley, Kelly and Mick. No, we we didn't bring Kelly and Mick. You know, but But anyway, you you could have. They would have made a difference. Oh man! So they. Oh yeah, those all the surfers pitched in the Padang, the Padang, the Padang surfing community there. You know, in West Sumatra, everybody jumped in. Everybody did a great job, and in many ways, it created what SurfAid is today with what they did as well. So we were out there as as these independent operators, and Bill decided, you know what? We should do this because surfers are really great with global aid. And here's why. One, they're physically fit. Two, they're courageous beyond imagination. Number three, they're culturally sensitive. They get it. And number four, the world likes surfers. You know, the world likes surfers. You you can show up in Simulu in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of surfers, you know, get off the boat and the villagers are going to like these guys. We're likable. Okay, so we're perfect. So anyway. It worked out. We did all this stuff. We got all this media attention because we were, you know, the little boat that could. And then um, we got back to the United States and Bill formed a nonprofit. And we were going to take a shot at being an independent nonprofit as surfers that helped after natural disasters. We thought this is great. And, all you know, let's do it. And all of a sudden, uh, Hurricane Katrina hits. And I'm like, 
you know, it is on the coast. It is a surfing town. And, and Bill goes, no, I got it, man. I got it. He took all the Billabong jet skis from the Odyssey and said, we're going, man. And so we hopped in these jet skis. I mean, we hopped in these cars and we towed them all the way from California, all the way to Katrina. And when we showed up, there was such chaos there because, of course, the American government just completely dropped the ball. And we show up with these jet skis and we're just, yep, we're here to rescue everybody. And they're like, right this way, sir. You know, and so they let us in the in the inside. And there we were at Katrina. And and that begins a whole nother story of how we went to the Ninth Ward and, you know, risked our lives. And and what's uh, the what's the Ninth Ward? Uh, the Ninth Ward is basically South Central L.A. in um, in New Orleans. It, it's the gnarliest, heaviest, uh, most dangerous neighborhood probably in the United States of America, you know. Because it's right on the Mississippi there, so all the drugs go through there, and they they got all the meth houses and all the uh, manufacturing, and it's it's just this super gnarly place that is um, uh, is run by warlords, and that was underwater, and there were kids that were up on roofs of their schools even after a week, living out of uh, you know. Um, there was one story of the kid that was a good swimmer and he would swim down and get all the potato chips out of the vending machine. And, you know, they were living on this stuff until we showed up or, well, and and I give all credit to Bill Sharp that we showed up on these jet skis and we started rescuing these people and bringing them back to dry land. And then once again, surfers, because of our skills and because we knew jet skis and because we're great swimmers and because we're physically fit and because people like us and trust us, you know, we all of a sudden we were recognized by the United States Army, you know, and we're like, who are you guys? And we're like, oh, you know, we're surf zone relief operations, mate. And they're like, oh, how much help do you need? And man, we had helicopters and it was really exciting stuff. Um, and we were very proud of what we did. And of course, um, in the end, our 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 nonprofit did not thrive because, you know, we just weren't fundraisers, you know, just that's what, you know, we're not guys running around begging for money all day, you know, would have been nice if somebody gave us a shitload, you know, but, you know, we, we'd be in operation to this day, but um, yeah, that was a real exciting, uh, a real exciting period in my life for sure. Man, your career working as a a relief worker is, is insane. I'm just looking here. Uh, yeah, you, you worked in Kashmir uh, on the yeah. border, border of India and Pakistan, building shelters yeah. uh, following the 2006 earthquake, 2004 tsunami, as you mentioned, up there at Arche. Hurricane know, Katrina, the Mount Merapi, there's the Mount Merapi um, uh, explosion, you know, that, that volcano blew up, blew its stack. We had to get people off the mountain. Um, and even to this day, even de- during COVID, it's always a part of my life. I think it should be a part of every surfer's life doing this. I think when the call goes out, surfers should respond because we're so damn good at it. For example, COVID here, um, I joined a group um, of of Australians, of course, um, called Project Nasi. And we Mm. got all the restaurants together. We got all the rice together and we started feeding people, you know. And of course, I give all that credit to the leaders of Project Nasi. It wasn't just me. But I found myself part of it and, and a valuable part of it, I will say. And it felt very good. And I think that surfers as world travelers should respond to all natural disasters, particularly coastal ones. Look what Mick did, you know, during the flood. What's he do? Goes straight down to Tweedheads River, gets a boat, loads it up. Let's go help. You know, like, yes, Mick, you know, hell yes. You know, he should be given a medal for that. 
Well wow. said, man. Yeah, Mick and Joel and, and Luke Monroe and, and Mikey Wright and, and, and tons of others, you know, yes. nameless, not famous surfers just out there in tinnies and jet skis doing their best. And uh, it, it is crazy after a natural disaster, you know, what you don't realize until you've lived through one is that there is this gnarly lag in between when the disaster happens and when government support arrives. Oh, it's, 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 a, it's a long period and people need help straight away uh they need to be picked up dusted off and put back on their feet they need food and housing and it's really just left up to civilians to do that for each other it's fucking wild like when you talk about Kashmir, new orleans arche you know talk to talk us through some of the the memories the sights the smells that have, have stayed with you from those places well of course we've all Many of us have been to the Indonesian archipelago, and we know we know what that's like. Um, and so, I'll just tell you something that was unfamiliar in the in the archipelago is when we would show up because <clears throat> we went to the north to Similu because we knew no one would ever go there. And so we we pulled up on our boat, and the actual reefs were about I would say three meters out of the water because of the lift of the bottom of the ocean, and that was like some sort of science fiction vision to any surfer you know to to see this this reef that had come up out of the ocean and and was drying you know and there's dead fish and these great coral formations just in the sun as high as the roof in your house and you're, you're pulling up to these things just going what in the hell I, incredible sight like that the other incredible sight was the daily change when we were moored at neos and one of the things that we vowed is that we were not going to surf until the job was done. We were not on a surf trip. And we all signed a little paper and put a little thumbprint on it in our own blood, you know. And so we were not going to surf, but we were moored at Neos, helping the Neos people for a, 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 on our way north. And the Neos reef, because of the aftershocks, the whole reef was like a, a, a waterbed. And it would change almost hourly, the wave itself would change. You could see it warbling and then all of a sudden it'd be this unrideable slab. Then it would just be this closeout. And then, you know, and it was all changing during the day because the whole earth after that tsunami was like a, a waterbed. Wow, you must have just been sitting there going, oh, oh please, no, no. Oh, oh, thank God. Yeah, 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 no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And to this day, the locals are really tapped into because it still moves around you know that that reef does change and it does change personalities and the locals are, are really into it so that was remarkable i also remember um of course it was in um new orleans and the water there was just black because you know the levees had broke and and the place was flooded up to a first floor level and cars were you know you could cars were floating around and and, and some bodies, unfortunately. And I'll never forget the sight of Frank Corte and Bill Sharp on the roof of a house with axes chopping a hole through the roof to get at these two old people, these two pensioners who were crying out for help in, in this incredible heat and the whole thing. And I was sitting there on, on, on the uh, idling jet ski, looking up at these two surfers, just going, man, on your mate, you know, like on your mate, you know, like surfers to the rescue, man. You know, I'll, I'll never forget. I was so proud of those two guys uh, because they were the real jet ski ex experts, not me. And then the other thing was, if I were going to say something about Kashmir, 
it was uh it it was a remarkable moment when um i would i would hike up with a small team i would hike up into the higher reaches where nobody could be reached and we would um we would start building shelter out of their homes that had fallen on the ground and and then the next thing we would do is we would build a helicopter pad with the whole community we get everyone together and get a helicopter pad and i can remember after like four or five days work and some people are sheltered and there's a helicopter pad that's been built and i get on my my comms there and <clears throat> all of a sudden i call in a helicopter you know and this this helicopter this un helicopter shows up and lands on a helicopter pad that we built this community and uh i, I get tears in my eyes you know I, I still do it was that was really quite something it's amazing man i mean a deep congratulations to you for for having the courage to to live that life and the and and the wisdom to know that helping others is really the most rewarding thing you can do in life um well, I agree. And some people also, and thank you so much for being so complimentary about my path in life and my journey. Thank you, Jed. I appreciate that. But I do want to say to everybody that is listening that um, it comes at great sacrifice, this kind of life. Great sacrifice. I never married until I was in my late 50s. I have never owned a home. I don't have children. Um, I, I don't have, you know, my life is still a life of of wandering I live in a little two-bedroom house uh, on the beach at Kuta Beach, um, and I still have my circle of friends and my global community, but I just want to mention to people that it's not luck. It's not luck to do to live a life like this, although I would encourage anyone with the spirit to do it. It's not luck at all, and it, it's, it's, it's a life of great sacrifice. Mate, you nailed it, and it's bizarre how similar our trajectories have been. I, I also grew up itinerant with a single mother moving around. I think lived in 10 homes before I was 13. Um, wow. And, and my, my adult years have completely reflected that upbringing, you know, like yourself worked as a, a journalist and a freelance journalist living sure. in Bali for years, traveling around Asia uh, living in, 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 in so many different communities to the point where, yeah, you end up with a, a global community of friends for sure, but you don't necessarily have that, that community on the ground in the place you're at. You know, it's not easy to necessarily build those relationships in short, short amounts of time. Mm -hmm. And um, that there is, yeah, the, the, there is definite downsides to living that itinerant, lifestyle of the journalist which is so poorly paid like that's the other thing people go oh cool job and it's like yeah but <laughs> you basically give up any opportunity of, of having a home or a family and even now where we're starting to make a little bit of money off the podcast we've still yeah. got righteous idealistic people telling us who we can and can't take money off you know oh you can't yeah. take money off this corporate sponsorship or this corporate sponsorship it's like, yeah. mate, we don't live in a fucking, I don't live in a reality where I can say no to money. Like I've never had it in yeah. my life. And I, I I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I'm glad like, you I would said rather, that. I'd, I would rather the world didn't work in such a way that all the people with all the money are 
generally tied up in fairly nefarious industries, sure. but that's the fucking system we live in. And if for people for, to say to me, no, you are not allowed to take money off those people. You're not allowed to advertise with those people. Like, who are you to fucking say that, man? Are you telling me I should just live in fucking rags in a in a shack out the back of Shane's joint in Gooningary? Like, <laughs> mate, I'm fucking, I've done that. And I'm That's over it. Exactly. Like, I need to make some loot now so I can fucking have a family and a home. Like, like yeah, anyway, like. It's no, I agree. I didn't set it up that way, but that's a rant, man. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying, man. Like, mate, and again, it's yeah, it is a deep sacrifice. But on the flip side of that, you've compiled such an enviable catalog of memories and experiences, and they're finding their mark in this book in deep, uh, and hopefully in the form of a memoir. Because I think, uh, I think, mate, like if you really want to tee off and go gonzo on it, like it'll, uh, it'll turn barbarian days into toilet paper, mate. <laughs> I, res- I, I, I respect all that. And I, I of course I respect Bill's uh, Williams book. Um, and I think we need all these things. And it brings me back to this book thing. You know, I know like, like my friend Pete Matthews recently, just, I think yesterday, handed this book in deep to Chloe Andino and Chloe basically said, what is this? You know? And he goes, well, it's a book. And he goes, Oh, I don't, I don't know if I've ever read a book in my life, you know, like, well, start here. Pete said, start here, mate. You know? And so what I'm trying to say is I believe, I believe that this book is, 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 is as vital to the youth as it is to, you know, the claw war bricks or the people like me in my early sixties or people like you and, you know, people mid-career, I, I think, and 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 I think all the world champions should read it. And I think it's, I think that it reaches everybody because it is short subject magazine type uh, stories. You know, they don't take forever to read and it's not daunting. And you can, you can live with this book over a year and just thumb through it and go, oh, you know, I think I'll read about Kiala today, or I think I'll read about Mick today or something like that, you know? So I think that this book thing, you know, when you mentioned Barbarian Days and In Deep, this book, I think that, you know, they're still vital. Like, I just I just got my new issue of Tracks magazine, and it, it's fantastic. You know, Luke's doing such a good job with that. And, um, you know, another, I have still- another one of Scum Valley's finest. Doff of the cap to uh, Luke Kennedy. Yeah, he, was a, he was a relief teacher at my high school uh, when I was a teenager. He was in my board writers club. He Hooked me up with right. my first two day a week gig in the media at Tracks Mag or in the surf. Yes, anyway. I tip my hat to I tip my hat to Luke all day long, and he was he was nice enough to print a feature that I just wrote on the Mentawai, and it was all about uh, the owner of the Kandui Resort, and it's a quite quite different story. It's not in the book; it'll be in the next one. But um, it, it was it was uh, with great pride that I got this magazine. And this story and read the other stories that were in there where surfers are still out there writing these stories and you can still get them access to your mind without a phone. And I think that is always going to be around. I am very happy to have got this book uh, just under the uh, window of all the noise about ChatGPT and AI. I personally believe the people that invented chat GPT and AI should be arrested and incarcerated for life. I think it's a crime. 
And I think it's it steals imagination. It steals the the desire for research and wanting to know something. Um, I, I think it's a crime. And so I'm very glad to get this book in under that what is on the horizon apparently with chat GTP or AI, uh, whether or not it bites us in the ass or not. Totally. And quick shout out to Bill Finnegan as well. You know, he's, he's been good to me, uh, tried to help me out with uh, an article, you know, I was sending probably ambitiously to the New Yorker, but uh, a very decent guy. That book's a fucking absolute stonk. I've taken the piss out of it on the pod in the past, but it's it's quality barbarian days. And uh, Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Exactly. You know, and, Jed, I mean, come on. What? Of course. You know, of course it's great. You know? Yeah, yeah. Although, don't get me started on the bourgeois literary establishment and, and what they consider to be important. Uh, anyway, but us, us the great pro- proletariat you and i the proletariat writer the ink stained wretch we're, we're the penny a page writers <laughs> well that's the thing right in the bourgeois literary literary establishment it's just fucking silver spooners up against silver spooners there's no grit merchants in that industry because you don't get a fucking start if you don't know the right people um yeah. and so that that's like they're, they're not they're not actually competing against the real deal are they they're competing against each other it's a bunch of fucking soft cocks having yeah. a crack but uh yeah let some let some let some battlers loose in the mix and uh you might get some different pulitzer prize winners oh um, i agree i couldn't i couldn't agree more but man as well gotta gotta acknowledge the the foreword to the book it's written by kelly fucking slater man like uh mm. you know we talked about it at the top of the program but it's it's actually it made me think when I was reading it, someone's got to get on to Kelly and get him writing, like get him with a Substack, or, you know, uh, he's a verbose deep thinker with an insane well of wisdom and experiences like yourself. And mm. uh, yeah, I, I really love the, the, the foreword to the book because yeah, he, he, he has opinions, man. He has strong opinions. He takes a swipe at the tech world. He makes some of the same points you did about the importance of long form journalism of books of of accruing knowledge in the correct mediums and he also tells the funniest story about you getting pantsed at a pro junior adventure fantastic but i'll tell you what about i'm glad you mentioned this because kelly slater takes surfing seriously he takes it seriously he's taken his career seriously and he didn't have a parachute early on he didn't have a parachute at all and he this this man who is highly intelligent, okay? He even created the wave pool. Let us not forget the legacy of Kelly and that crazy invention of the, of that wa- of that wave from the you desire the yeah, desire of not having enough waves on the East Coast, the desire of every East Coaster, God, if I only had a wave pool in my backyard. And this man assembled a team that did it spectacularly. And if that isn't impressive, I don't know what. And I love the thought of Kelly Slater writing a book. Now, we do have that one. Uh, uh, pot Dreams. I've read pot it. Dreams. And, and that, you know, it was ghost written. Basically ghost written, you know, right? It right. was it was a, a series of interviews. Yeah. I mean, I contemporary it. contemporary hot takes on topics, on, you know, whatever yeah. it is that, that he wants to share with us. I'd, I'd read that because, yeah, he's oh, a, yes. a really interesting guy. No, I agree. And and the other thing too, which is really astonishing to me, is that he can write. Exactly. 
Yeah. He can put pen to paper. Yeah. If you re- if you read that essay, the foreword he did for Clark Little's photography book, I was I was engrossed. I'm just like, did Kelly write this? You know, like what? You know, he left school when he was 14. I thought he was a little. I, I was like, no, I think that would be a great idea. And again, I think you and I are, have got to get the placards out and we've got to start walking down the streets with a couple of our movements. And one of them is free Kelly Slater. Free Kelly Slater. Let him write. Let him say what he wants. You know, that's what I say. I think it's a great idea. Man, speaking of the wave pool, I nearly fell off my chair when I was reading that 1989 surfer piece you wrote about him. You ask him what he wants to do if he becomes rich. And he says, oh, well, if I had money, I'd probably build a wave pool for me and all my friends. He said that when he was 17. He fucking achieved his childhood dream, man. And he did it. It's crazy. It's crazy. He did it. And you say what you will about the wave pool. I think it gets a really bad reputation because they have that ridiculous contest in it. But the wave itself, come on, man. Have you seen that thing? I mean, Jesus. Wow. This isn't some Waco shore break, you know, air ramp. This is a man's wave, you know? And like, wow, that was visionary and it will be his legacy, you know? Wow. I'm actually a a proponent of wave pools. I think wave pools are a really good idea for one reason. It completely removes the anxiety of being in the lineup. It completely removes all drop-ins. It completely removes all localism. It removes everything. There's plenty of waves to go around, and it's your turn. I like that, man. I really like that. Uh, And before I let you go, I just also want to make mention of the fact that you yourself were a a fairly elite surfer, you know, a a competing professional surfer, right? Back in the day. Oh, yes, I was. And a very proud one. I was, and I'm still, I'm, I'm still sponsored by Rip Curl. Um, I, I, Rip Curl runs in my veins, man. And um, I, I'm very proud of what I did. I didn't like the tour on fire in in any way. As a matter of fact, in many ways, I was a bit of a ghost, but you know, you try going up against, you know, Gary Timperley and Sean Thompson and Rabbit Bartholomew. And you try going up against these guys as a little kid. I I went for it, man. I was there throwing punches. And uh, I did my best. And I, I think my my favorite my favorite achievement was on North Stradbroke Island, okay, during a cyclone. And um I won two bride of the contest. And there was some there was some cats there, man. Specky was, you know, Russell Speck, Gary Timberley. There were some cats, man. Uh, Dominic Wybrow, you know these guys. Ah. And 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 I I won I won the uh, I won the two bride of the contest, and I I won a Kodak Instamatic camera for it. And I was so proud. I was like, oh, mate, I won a camera. You know, like, amazing. Was, Straight to the hawk shop in Logan. Yeah, exactly. It was a great achievement. But the other thing that it did was Katut Menda. In that contest, they took eight international surfers and put them up against eight Australians. And we got mowed down by the Australians, of course. But the um, the the Indonesian representative was the great Katut Menda. Mm. And Katut Menda and I were roommates. We became roommates because we were both, you know, sort of very independent. And um, as the sole American and as the sole uh, Indonesian, we were drawn to each other. And we, we were roommates and we became lifelong friends. And many, many years later, when I moved here, permanently to retire 13 years ago, I was observing uh, Pranama in the temple um, with my lady. And um, 
I, I, you know, I'm showing respect with my head bowed and we're listening to the beautiful ceremony and the whole thing. And, and I get a little tap on the top of my head and a whisper in my ear and I look up and it's Menda. Menda is actually one of the priests in training. And he, he went on to become, you know, the great Katut Menda went on to use his spirituality and as it relates to surfing to become, you know, a Pemmanku here, a, a priest. And, and there he was after all these years, you know, and I was just like, Katut, it's so good to see you, man. You know, and it's these kind of friendships that surfing give you, you know, um, and, and the new ones that you can make are so, are, are just so important. And I will say, I just wanted to mention one more thing about Australia, if you don't mind me saying this. Um, I think the most successful surfer in the history of surfing is the great Australian champion, Mick Fanning. What a career and what a man after what he has come through. I had an experience with him recently here that really convinced me that he is the greatest champion that we've ever had because of who he is. We recently lost McCalla Jones here. He was a real son of Bali and we lost him and, and we were all at the crematorium and the ceremony here in Bali. And I look over to my right and very quietly sitting in the back pew was Mick Fanning. Mick Fanning was a friend of McCullough and he flew into Bali for this ceremony, this final ceremony of the cremation. And he very quietly sat in the back between two old Indonesian women who didn't know who he was. He wasn't drawing attention to himself. When Love Hotel got everyone to please talk, you can step forward. He didn't. He wasn't going to make the day about McFanning. He wasn't going to speak. He was just there to show his respect for his friend. And I had tears in my eyes. I just thought, this guy is class, man. This is a class act that I'm looking at. And he very quietly shook some hands and went on his way. And it just left me with the impression that from the background that he came from and the incredible skill that he has, the injuries that he's come back from, and to become a wealthy Gold Coast resident and, and such a remarkable surfer when you see him in this Kangs thing. My call is that Mick Fanning is the greatest champion we've ever had. Oh, it's a big call. And uh, as much as I love Mick, I'm not willing to to go there with you, but I respect the fuck out of that guy. And yeah, he is the battler king, the battler prince, uh, son of a single mom from fucking Penrith who became a world surfing champion. Are you kidding me? From Penrith. From Penrith of it's unbelievable. Me. It's biblical. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's less believable than the Bible. <laughs> Uh, but, well, anyway, that's my big call. I love it. No, it's great. I mean, frick, man. Uh, there's many people who would agree with you. Uh, I, like in light of actually reading your surfer magazine piece about Slater, I, I, I'm only just, I'm more in Kelly's camp after understanding gotcha. in, in in rich detail the hardship he faced as a grom, um, mm. growing up. So yeah, I mean, take your pick. Take your pick from any of those guys. That they they're all fucking battlers done good. John, Medina, Fanning, Slater, mm. Beachley, like it's 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 a battlerathon and uh credit to them all. And uh man certainly Lane Beachley. Certainly. And I'm also I was also a great proponent of female surfing all my life because in my 
experience with these surfers doing these stories, I've found all the women very powerful and I found all the men very vulnerable. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I guess there is some, uh, some strength in vulnerability or, uh, yeah, courage in, in, in vulnerability, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I agree. I, I, so much respect for the women pro surfers, particularly of that era, like the eighties, nineties, Jody yeah. Cooper, Pauline Mensah, sure. Beachley, Burridge, like freak man. Um, Frida Zamba, like you talk sure. about hard scrabble battlers who are up against it in surfing's history. No one has had to, uh, you know, break the ceiling, more than that generation of female surfers, incredible, and uh, and yourself, man. You mentioned uh, you, you come out swinging, you come out throwing punches. I can't let you go. I know you got to go, but I can't let you go before you tell me about this uh, dalliance you had with the Golden Gloves. So you're a mad pugilist. You're you're a proper Hemingway prototype. <laughs> Listen, I would show up for my daily beating. Okay. I mean, I was no, I was just Irish, you know, I mean, I would just go in, you know, I had some skills. I had great surfing fitness and I really loved the workouts because it was so great for surfing. And I loved the mythology of, of, of boxing. And I really wanted to do my part and be part of it for a couple of years. Now I never won any great championships. I was involved in some three round smokers, um, but I wanted to know what that was like. And a lot of it was because um, I've never lit the, my surfing world on fire in big waves. I've always been very hesitant and anxiety ridden in big waves. And it, it's, it's always troubled me. And I wanted to really test my courage. And I thought the best way to test my courage is to go get punched in the face. And so I, um, I, I took up, I took up boxing in San Francisco and, and did it for a couple of years and was in tremendous shape. But like I said, um, once again, it was sort of like my surfing career. I was right there in the middle and I got in the ring, you know, and I threw my punches, but I'm not going to say that I lit anything on fire or won any titles or anything like that. But yeah, I was involved in the Golden Gloves and uh, and I, I I look back on that as, as a, a remarkable experience. And uh, to this day, I'm still a boxing fan. I'm not much of an MMA fan, I must say. I, I, I'm, I'm old school, I guess. I just, I like the idea of guys trading punches. You know, I know it's brutal. I know it's horrible, but you know, I can't help it. I, I, I love the mythology and I'm very proud to be part of it. Even though, like I said, I, I showed up for my daily beating, you know, that day, I know you've been a martial artist, you know, that day when you show up and you realize you're facing someone who is so far superior to your skill that you just go, Oh my God. And you just take your beating and go, I think I've had enough of this sport. You know, I think I've had enough. Oh, that day, that, that day came to me. It's every day at jujitsu. I'm headed there in a couple hours. Uh, I've got ulcers on my neck from getting choked out that often. And uh, I'm, mate, I'm no, I'm new to martial arts. To be honest, I, I learned to fucking defend myself at a certain age, but uh, there wasn't much guidance or or art to uh, the style of fighting I was forced to learn. Um, yes. But yeah, fuck, man, incredible life. Love the the variation of experiences. And the, the mm. commitment to being a, a real seeker, an adventurer, and uh, yeah, really experimenting as much of the human experience as you can. I, I think that is the the job of the journalist. And you know, we're just essentially our job is to be conduits of everything that we learn uh, and, and try to disseminate that to people who haven't been as fortunate to have those experiences. In the hope of you know. Uh, it, enlarging or improving awareness consciousness 
knowledge, yes. information. It's an important job. It's not to be taken lightly and you've sacrificed your life at the altar of it. So, you know, yes. I hope people understand that and respect that. Well, the human experience, yes. And like, I didn't choose journalism. It certainly chose me. And so in in in, in closing here, I, I know I would just like to say thank you to all uh, to Australia. Australia was uh, in this journey was a big, big influence on my life and certainly on my surfing. And, and it, I, it's, it still remains that way. And I just, I just want to thank, I don't know how to thank a country, <clears throat> but I'd like to uh, thank you, Australia. Thank you, Matt. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure, man. I'd love to have you on again. Uh, I'm, I'm no doubt there's so many more things to talk about. And uh, yeah, just good to get your take on on current affairs and whatnot. So uh, let's sure. let's do it again. Sure. Let, let next time let's talk about what's going on now. For now, I hope everybody. Um, you can get my the easiest way to get my book is on Amazon. I guess. Yeah. It's called it's called In Deep, and uh, it's worth it just to read Kelly's forward. Really. <laughs> so good. So good. Thanks. All so right, much, brother. Mate. Say hi to all my Australian brothers and particularly to Vaughn. I've got a real soft spot in my heart for him. A hundred percent. Will do, brother. All right, mate. Take you care. Take care, man.